0: Good morning everybody. It's lovely to see you. Um, Do please keep your Bibles open. If anybody else wants to have a go at preaching Romans 9, do do put your hand up. Um, We don't have formal Bible study groups this week, but uh, you might just like to take the yellow question sheet home with you and find a friend this afternoon and just spend half an hour going through the questions. Um, Not... So that you get perfect answers, necessarily, but just to try and anchor the teaching of this passage in your in your own minds, I think you will find that to be helpful. But um, I certainly need God's help as we come to this tremendous chapter. So let's ask God to be with us. God, our Father, we know that only when you open a door for the Word into our hearts. Can your word enter and change us? And so we pray that as we come to this word now, you would do that great work of opening a door into each heart here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who's in charge? Um, It's a question, I think, that seems to be coming up more and more today. Until about a year ago, it uh, looked like Donald Trump was in charge. But uh, with so many scandals coming to light, this morning we're not quite so sure. Here in South Africa, uh, it was the question that emerged during the state capture inquiry. And with our own elections coming up next month, it's the question in the back of the mind of many South Africans even this morning... These days it seems that you can be in government uh, without actually being in charge at all. Theresa May and the British government know quite a lot about that. And what's true of governments can also be true of you and me individually. Uh, We make plans for our lives, uh, we work out what we're going to do and when we're going to do it, But again and again we find that things don't quite turn out in the way that we expect. Uh, The boy or girl of our dreams turns us down. The perfect job is offered to somebody else. The ideal family life that we'd always hoped for has been soured by bitter argument and by sullen moods. And just when we're approaching the retirement we've been longing for. Ill health kicks in, and so we can't enjoy it in the way that we liked. Or the husband or the wife dies, and we, we have to face that chapter on our own. Now human beings do not have ultimate power, whether governments or individuals. But from beginning to end, the Bible says that what we human beings do not have, God does. God really is in charge. Now, over the past couple of years, in the second term, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Romans, and he's set out for us the the wonderful good news of the Gospel of Christ. And his message has been that the way to be right with God is not by anything that you and I can do. In fact, as we read together earlier, all have sinned, uh, Romans chapter 3, we've all fallen short of God's perfect standards. So the only way that we can get right with God is by trusting in the death of Jesus on our behalf. There's no other way. And uh, in the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul says that if we're Christians, we not only have a new status of being in the right with God, we also have a new life because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And we have this new life partially now, as the Holy Spirit begins to transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. And we will have it perfectly in the future, says the Apostle Paul, because one day we will be like him. And that future, says Paul, in chapter 8, is absolutely guaranteed. Just glance back with me, if you will, to the end of chapter 8, where we find these marvellous words of assurance In verses 38 and 39, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it is absolutely cast iron guaranteed. But then as chapter 9 begins, there's a dramatic change of mood. Chapter 9, verse 2, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And as we read on, we find that his anguish stems from the fact that most of his fellow Jews have rejected the good news of Jesus. And it's a matter of the greatest sadness for Paul, so much so that he actually says, I'd be willing to be cut off myself from Christ if it would mean their salvation. So it's a matter of genuine agony for Paul And it raises, doesn't it, great questions about God. Especially the question that Paul raises in verse 6. Because the question implied in verse 6 is, has the word of God failed? In the Old Testament, God made amazing promises to the people of Israel, to Abraham's descendants. He said he would bless them, and that through them all nations would be blessed. They were his special people. But Paul's problem is, if they were rejecting Christ, and therefore by definition were not part of his special people, doesn't that imply that God's word has failed? That God hasn't actually kept his promise to the children of Israel? And if that's the case, how can you and I be sure that he'll keep his promises to us? Especially that amazing promise we just read at the end of chapter 8, that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. I mean, if God's word has already failed for the people of Israel, can we actually be sure of his promise to us? Paul, tell us, please. Now, I'm sure most of you know that Paul's response in chapters 9 to 11 is famously complicated. But in chapter 9, Paul's main point is that God is acting now as he has always acted. He chooses who belongs to him and who does not In other words, he's not simply standing helplessly on the touchline watching and wondering what's going to happen and how things are going to work out. No, no, he's in charge. And what we're going to do is look at three aspects of that great truth and then at the end I'm going to suggest three applications. So number one, God chooses his people. Number two, God chooses undeserving people. And number three, God chooses surprising people. So first, God chooses his people. And here we're zooming in to verses 6 to 13. Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed. God has not failed to keep his promises. His plans haven't been derailed. Why not, Paul? Verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, there's always been two Israels. Quickly turn over to the back of the yellow sheet and I've given you a picture of what he's talking about. There's always been a physical Israel, meaning all those people who are physically or biologically descended from Abraham, but there's also been a spiritual Israel, meaning all those who truly are the people of God. And there's always been a difference between those two. Spiritual Israel has always been a smaller group than physical Israel. And to make the point, Paul goes back to the earliest times in Israel's history and he gives us two examples. Come with me to verse 7. Verse 7, Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary... It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now what he's doing here is he's remembering that time when Abraham received the amazing gospel of God and God promised to bless Abraham and to bless all his descendants. But the problem, you remember, was that at the time Abraham didn't actually have any children. His wife Sarah was terribly old. And so in the end, Sarah makes a suggestion. She says, well, why don't you go and sleep with my servant girl, Hagar? So Abraham does, and Hagar gives birth to a son, Ishmael. Looks very promising. But God says, Ishmael is not the child of the promise. The line of the promise Is not going to go that way. And you see, it's as if God was saying right from the very beginning of the Bible, salvation is not by works. You can't help me out with this. The line of promise is going to be established by a miracle. And sure enough, it was. Sarah, aged 90, got pregnant. And she gave birth to a son. Do you know what they called him? They called him laughter. That's actually the meaning of the word Isaac. Laughter. And in a sense, it actually was laughable. I mean, imagine Sarah, age 90, uh, toddling along with her Zimmer frame into the hospital. And a a, a nice nurse says to her, hello dear, geriatric department just down the corridor, third door on the right. And Sarah replies, no, I've come for the maternity ward. And the nurse just bursts out laughing. She can't help herself. And then when she does recover herself, she says, I'm so sorry. Is it perhaps the birth of your great, great, great grandchild? And Sarah says, no. No. I'm going to have a baby. Well, and then they just fell about laughing. But she did. She did. Because God had said to Abraham that it was through this miracle child, through Isaac, that your offspring will be reckoned. And so you see, Isaac was spiritual Israel Ishmael wasn't. And the same thing happened in the next generation in verses 10 to 13. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have two boys. They were twins. Jacob and Esau both were sons of Isaac. Only one was a son of God. Verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger just as it is written Jacob I loved Esau I hated now that's very strong language Uh, But don't be confused, it's not talking about emotional hatred. God doesn't hate in the way that you and I use that word today. God loves. But it was an idiom, an expression in Hebrew, describing a preference. So think about it with me. Uh, Jesus said, didn't he, if you want to come after me, you must hate your father and mother. But Jesus also encourages all his disciples to obey all the commandments, including the command to honour our parents. So Jesus wasn't saying that all true disciples must quite literally hate their parents. I'm quite relieved about that. No, Jesus is saying, I must come before your parents. He was commanding a preference. So the choice was made. Jacob was chosen to belong to the people of God. Esau wasn't. And let's get it clear in our minds that it was not because Jacob was a better person, because he wasn't. The name Jacob literally means deceiver, which is a very accurate description of Jacob's personality. And you see, what's happening is, you and I are being helped here to answer a very fundamental question. How can you and I become part of the people of God? And what we're learning in this text is that it's not by being members of a particular family, a particular nation or a particular denomination. I mean, you might smile, but some people might think, and they do, you know, I'm an Anglican, therefore I'm a Christian. Or I've been baptized, so of course I'm a Christian. Or, to turn it the other way around, uh, you might think, well, I'm not from a Christian country, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, Uh, I've never attended church regularly, therefore well, I can never become a Christian. And the Apostle Paul is saying, with the full authority of Almighty God, it's got nothing to do with your background. It's not about anything you might do. Verse 12, look at it. It is not by works, but by him who calls. In other words... It's God who makes Christians. Now you might say, well, just hold on a cotton-picking minute, Simon. Surely it depends on my choice. I mean, isn't it true that although the Gospel is offered to us, we've got to believe it? Well, yes, that is absolutely true. We have got to believe it. But how can we believe it? Well, well, Only if God opens our eyes to understand the beauty of the Gospel and changes our hearts and moves our wills in order that we do. Try thinking about it like this. Imagine you are walking towards an arch. There's this this huge arch in front of you and written over the top of the arch is a Bible text. Big letters... It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come. And so, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel appealing to our hearts and our minds and our wills, saying, respond, come, have faith. And so, I choose to come. I have faith. I walk through the arch And as soon as I've walked through it, I turn round and on the other side of the arch, there's another Bible text over the top in big letters and it says, You did not choose me, I chose you. Now that was certainly true for me. Um, There was absolutely no way that I would have naturally chosen to become a Christian. It would never have entered my head to do it. At the time, absolutely nobody was nudging me. In the end, I did respond. But as I look back, I realise that God arranged everything. He arranged for me to meet a particular person, to read a particular book, to listen to a particular talk on a particular day, and he arranged many other things besides. And in the end, God opened my eyes and he changed my heart. You see, it was God's choice because God chooses his people. Well, of course, that leads, doesn't it, to an inevitable question. How can it be fair for God to choose this person, but not that person? I mean, that essentially is the question in verse 14. Can you see it? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. Now, this leads us to the second really important truth I want us to get hold of this morning. Yes, God chooses his people, but secondly... God chooses undeserving people. Verses 14 to 18. So look carefully at verse 14 and following. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire and effort, but on God's mercy. Now, suppose with me for a moment that you're uh, the managing director of your own company (coughs) and all of your employees, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) all your employees work really hard for the whole month. But at the end of the month, you only pay half the employees their salary, and you give nothing to the other half. Now that obviously is extremely unjust, isn't it? They all worked hard, they all deserve their wages, it's very unjust to deprive any of them. But then imagine an alternative situation. Uh, A new king is crowned in a certain country. One of the first things he does is to visit a maximum security prison. And all the prisoners there have been found guilty of the most appalling crimes. But the king chooses just a handful of them and he gives them a free pardon. Now, the others can't say, that's unfair. They've been given a free pardon and I haven't. They might think that, they might want to say that, but can you see that justice demands that all of them are in prison? And the fact that the king has given a free pardon to a few of them, well, that's just mercy, isn't it? The prisoners still in jail are only receiving what they deserve. Those who've been set free are receiving what they don't deserve. They're receiving mercy. Now, friends, that is how it is with salvation. That is the only way I can become one of God's children. None of us deserve it. It's not like that businessman depriving his workers of wages they deserve, because none of us deserve salvation. No, the only way that any of us can experience the mercy of God is by his undeserved grace. And in our text, you see, the point that Paul is making, he's saying that he is amazed not that God rejected Ishmael and Esau. No, no. He's amazed that God chose Jacob and Isaac. And that's how it is with anybody who's come to put their trust in Christ. As we look back, we say, you know, that was God's calling. I didn't deserve it. Because God is a God of amazing mercy. And that, dear friends, is the big theme running through Romans 9. And Paul goes on to say that God even uses his sovereign power to fulfil his merciful purposes through the stubborn rebellion of people who continue to reject him. It's an amazing thought. So in verse 17, you'll notice there, Paul takes us back to the time of the Exodus when God, you remember, determined to save his people from slavery in Egypt. And so he raised up Moses. And Moses was to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But Pharaoh, of course, was the most powerful man in the world at the time. Pharaoh said, no chance. Now that looked very much like an obstacle to God fulfilling his merciful purposes, didn't it? But what happened? Pharaoh said, no, God sent a plague, Pharaoh said no again. God sent another plague. And that pattern is repeated ten times. It looks like a massive obstacle against the will of God. But what Paul says here, no, no, it's not an obstacle. Because God was in control even over Pharaoh's stubborn resistance. Verse 17 For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, Pharaoh does not stop God from doing what he wants. In fact, if you think about it, Pharaoh's stubborn resistance meant that there was an even greater display of God's glory and power than there would have been otherwise. I mean, think about it. If Moses had said to Pharaoh, let my people go, and uh, Pharaoh had said, sure, no problem, well, that wouldn't really have been a great testimony, would it, to the power of God. But because Pharaoh resisted time and time again, wanted to make it impossible. Actually, we see how mighty and powerful and awesome God's salvation was and is. It's not that God was responsible for Pharaoh's evil behaviour because God is perfectly good. He's never responsible directly for evil. But the point is that in his sovereign power, He can use even the most stubborn rebellion to achieve his merciful purposes. And so Paul concludes this little section in verse 18 with some puzzling words. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now that sounds shocking to us, doesn't it? It almost sounds arbitrary, as if God's merciful today, but he might actually harden a person's heart tomorrow. But God is not capricious, he's not like that. Remember the context. In this passage, Paul is emphasising the mercy of God. Martin Luther the reformer spoke of the judgment of God as the work of God's left hand. It's a rather a lovely phrase, isn't it? It means that it's almost unnatural to him to act in judgment because what God loves to do with his right hand is to show mercy. But sometimes in order to fulfill his perfect merciful purposes he does exercise judgment and he can use his judgment on someone like Pharaoh as powerful as that as a way of showing to those who receive his mercy his amazing power and grace. So don't forget the context. It's all about God's mercy and don't forget the nature of humanity because you see when God harden somebody's heart. He is not changing them from a neutral state into a sinful state. What he's doing is merely handing them over to the consequences of their own disobedient choices. And if you read the book of Exodus, you see that pattern happening again and again and again that not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, but also we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And both are true. God simply was handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own sin. By contrast, when God has mercy on somebody, He changes their status from guilty to innocent. And it is a massive change with eternal consequences. And the point is, you see, listen to this carefully, no one in hell can ever blame God. They can't say, I'm here because God predestined me for this. It's God's fault. The Bible says that if we find ourselves in hell, it is because we've rejected him and we are 100% responsible. But by the same token, there's going to be nobody in heaven saying, well done me, patting themselves on the back. I've done so well to get here. No, everybody in heaven knows and will know that it's only by God's gracious mercy. So God chooses His people. God chooses undeserving people. No one deserves it. And then, third, God chooses surprising people. Now, we'll come back to verses 19 to 21 at the end, but I want to zoom in here on verses 22 to 29 because Paul is saying that God in Paul's day was doing something similar to what he did through Pharaoh in the past. He's using the people that Paul describes in verse 22 as the objects of his wrath, that means all the people who continue to reject his son, he's using them, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy. Now, what what on earth does he mean? It sounds rather cloudy, doesn't it? He's saying that God's patience to those who reject him is absolutely astonishing. Because God does not climb in with devastating judgment immediately. One day his patience will run out, and there will be terrible judgment. And on that day, when those who belong to him see his judgment and see his wrath, they will praise God all the more because they'll see the horrors from which they were saved. But I think there's something more going on here. You see, if you think about it, in the past, it was Pharaoh who was the object of God's wrath and Israel was the object of God's mercy. But the shock in this passage is that in Paul's day it was many Jews who were the objects of God's wrath. And yet the Gentiles, who for centuries had been despised and looked down on as pagans, many of them along with just a handful of believing Jews, they are described here as the objects of his mercy and in chapter 11 paul will go on to say that the jewish rejection of the gospel was what led to the gentiles being included and if you read the book of acts you find it happening again and again and again paul arrives in a new city he starts by going into the synagogue to preach to the jews The Jews reject him, so he leaves them and goes down the road and gives the gospel to the Gentiles. And as a result, many Gentiles experienced God's mercy and came to a knowledge of the truth. And all the time, you see, God was using the rejection and the unbelief of some people to make that happen. And as I say, the great shock in the passage is that Gentiles were saved. People who were complete outsiders to the promises of God. People who had no hope at all. And yet many of them became God's people. And Paul says, if you know your Old Testament Bibles properly, you'll know that was always God's plan. Can we all see verse 25 in our Bibles? As God says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Paul understands that to be talking about Gentiles. And throughout the Old Testament, it was prophesied that only a few would be saved from God's special people. That's the meaning of the Isaiah quote. In verse 27, astonishing quote, isn't it? Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Now, if that sounds like rather bleak news for the Jews, Paul goes on to give us the balance, because in chapter 11, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks' time, he tells us that many, many Jews will come to believe But the big point for you and I to take away this morning is that God chooses surprising people. That's how it is today. He chooses people like me. I mean, when I began my working career in the City of London, it never, never entered my head that I would ever become a committed Christian. And if you had said to me, well, by the way, 30 years' time, you're going to be a pastor in Cape Town, I mean, I would have laughed. But then almost by accident, somebody explained the Gospel to me and I knew Jesus was real. I knew that he's alive. I knew I had to put my trust in him. Eventually, I did. It was all so surprising. More than that, the person who discipled me for 20 years was a converted Hindu. Uh, He'd been a devout, practising Hindu for 35 years, not playing about. He believed it. He practised it. Humanly speaking, everything was against him ever becoming a Christian. One day he walked into a church without ever realising it was a church. He heard the Gospel He suddenly knew who Jesus was that Jesus is alive he put his faith in him caused all kinds of problems for him and his family but in the years since God has used that converted Hindu to lead hundreds of English businessmen to Christ how surprising is that? Would you have done it that way if you were God? I wouldn't But you see, that is God's way. God chooses surprising people. He's in charge and he will always find ways, surprising ways, to ensure that his merciful purposes are fulfilled. God chooses his people. God chooses undeserving people. God chooses surprising people. People. As we close, let me suggest three brief applications. Number one, this passage is telling us that it is very possible to know a lot about God without actually knowing Him. You see, the Jews in Paul's day. Knew huge amounts about God, they would have passed all of the exams at George Whitfield College, no problem. Sadly, most of them didn't know him personally. And in exactly the same way, there are multitudes of people today who know their Bibles, they're in church every Sunday, they might come from a Christian family, they might even be ordained, and yet they don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Now what about you? Do you know him? Because it is possible for you to know a great deal about God and not know him. Number two. We must always remember our place before our maker. Let's come back to verse 19 which we skipped over. Paul says... One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? It's a very natural question. I mean, if God is sovereign and God determines what's going to happen, surely he is responsible when we go wrong. So, how can he blame somebody if God hardens their heart? Well, look at Paul's answer in verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Sounds rather harsh, but don't misunderstand Paul's point. Paul is not here condemning a humble, questioning attitude. If somebody says, you know, Simon, I just can't get my mind around this, Paul doesn't condemn you for it. You're actually in very good company. I'm sure most of us in this room this morning are puzzling with some of the details in Romans 9. I am! I mean, just think about one example. The Bible absolutely teaches that human beings are responsible for their actions which is why God is absolutely just in holding us accountable. And deep down, you and I know we are responsible. And yet at the same time, the Bible also teaches that God is sovereign. And that absolutely nothing happens except by his divine permission. So you've got those two things. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Both are true. Can you work out that logically? Because I can't. But can I say this to you this morning? It is possible to be more logical than biblical. Do you understand that? And instead of saying, you know, I can't accept this because it doesn't make sense to me... Actually, what we need to be doing is saying, God, you are absolutely beyond me and it is right that I worship you. You know, this teaching that God chooses who to save and who not to save, it is very, very humbling and you and I need to remember our place before our maker. Number three, never forget God's mercy. See, the fact of God's sovereignty and salvation is not meant to bring you to despair. We're not to say, you know, I'm not one of the chosen ones, so there's no hope for me. No. The Gospel is freely offered to everybody. It is a genuine offer. And elsewhere, the Lord Jesus says, seek And you will find, knock, and the door will be opened. So can I say to you this morning that if you're someone who doesn't yet know these things and you're puzzled about these things, God says, seek, keep reading, keep praying, keep asking your questions. And if you do that, you can be absolutely certain that heaven's door will be opened. Why can you be sure of that? Because God says it and God is in charge. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, our minds struggle to Understand some of these things. But those of us who are Christian this morning praise you for your amazing mercy in calling us to know you. Keep us humble before you and full of grateful adoration. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.